Okay, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to finish out the chapter this morning. We're going to get into chapter 27 as well. So we're going to review a little bit, and then we're going to um, read our text and ask God to bless it, and then we'll move on with what we're going to do. So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you, you've seen where we've come in the story of Jesus leading up to the cross. We're getting there. Matthew is a long book. These last couple chapters are long chapters, but we're getting there. We want to do it justice, though, and kind of unearth the things out of it that, that God would have for us. And so last week we talked about Caiaphas and how Jesus stood before him, and really it was a, a mock trial. Uh, he was trying to find false witnesses to incriminate Jesus and couldn't find any. Um, but it was his solution to the council's problems that we saw in the book of John that really had to do with what what we talked about. And it was, he, he said to the council, he said, you guys don't know anything. Isn't it better for one guy, Jesus, to die so that the whole nation, Israel, might be saved? And, I mean, wow, that has big implications for our belief system, for what we know about Christ, for what we know about redemption and atonement. Basically, he was saying, we kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. We're going to substitute Jesus for us. And that revealed really what's at the core, the heart of the gospel, substitution, right? God substituted Jesus in our place. Caiaphas meant, let's kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. God meant, I'm going to kill my son so that I won't have to kill you. Jesus died in our place. God substituted him for us. And now we're free to live for him because he died for us. The focal point of every one of the four Gospels is, of course, the life of Jesus himself. But today, as Jason mentioned, we're going to kind of go behind the scenes just a little bit and compare Judas and Peter. And I don't think it's an accident that they're side by side here in Scripture, although they're separated by a chapter that we put in there. Um, they're still side by side here. And so I'd like to, to, to turn there, if you're not already in Matthew 26, and we're going to look at verse 69. And go through chapter 27, verse 10. So look at that with me. Once we're done reading this, we'll have a word of prayer together. Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it. And with an oath said, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and whipped better. Let me try that again. And he went out and wept bitterly. Chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, 
what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's pray together. Lord, our hearts um, without you are wicked. We need a refreshing of the spirit. We need an encounter with the spirit to have any kind of understanding of this text of your word. Lord, uh, not only that, but every believer in this room needs uh, an elimination of distractions today to focus on you in my heart, in my mind, in my brothers and sisters' hearts and minds here this morning, God. Direct our attention to the text that we have before us. Lord, you have um, life within these words for us today. Um, not within Rod's words, but Lord, within the words of Christ, within your words. And so we pray that that's what shines through today as we discuss and dig a little more. We pray this in his name. Amen. So I want us to notice something right off the bat in chapter, the end of chapter 26, uh, these encounters in the courtyard, right? So Peter is there. They have taken Jesus away. He's kind of hanging around, uh, kind of seeing what would happen. And he has some encounters and it's not what you would expect, as Jason said before kids. So I want us to notice first off that Peter, although it says that he invokes a curse on himself, um, he's not blaspheming here. Uh, he is basically denying that he was with Jesus, that he was a disciple, that he was a friend of Jesus. He was not denying that Jesus was God. He was not denying that Jesus was the son of God. He was not denying that he had come in the flesh or that he was the only way to be saved. I think if he would have denied those things, his outcome would have been significantly different. Number two, second thing I think we should notice here, and this one is a little on the humorous side, it was not a band of thugs with pitchforks and torches like arrested Jesus. It was not that kind of a group that confronted Peter in the courtyard, was it? It was a little girl. It was a servant girl that came up and asked him about these things. Two of them, actually. Unassuming, innocent question, I think for the most part, and this this caused Peter to, to deny what he had said before to Jesus. It was unassuming, innocent little things. And I, I think that's just the way that it is with, with life, isn't it? It's the small things. It's the unassuming things that kind of uh, caused Peter to contradict himself and betray and deny the Savior. And it's the same way for us, isn't it? It's the little things, the little compromises, not usually the big stuff that pull us away from Jesus and cause us to deny what we say we believe. It's those things that just kind of wiggle in almost unnoticed that are the biggest problem. I think it's the slow fade from dedication to denial that get, usually gets us. That slow fade 
from dedication to denial that usually gets us. Brothers and sisters, we have to fight it. We have to fight sin every day. We have to put our future, and we have to put all of our hope in Jesus Christ because in our own effort, we do not have the strength to stand. But we do fight, and we do trust, and those things go hand in hand. Now, Peter's denial of Jesus caused him guilt and sorrow. Uh, remorse was the, the word that we use with the kids. Um, but this wasn't the end of Peter's story, as we'll see a little bit later. But it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. I, th- I think we can understand this. I think we can identify with this, don't you? You know, Peter recognized his sin. He recognized what he had done, and he was just overcome with emotion. Uh, I, I think if we asked for a raise of hands, every one of us in this room would say at some point, because of something wrong that we have done, we've been overcome with emotion. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think it's wrong for us in that moment to be overcome with emotion. With the right heart, that kind of response is exactly what the Lord uses to bring us back to him, to bring us to him initially, even in the first place. You know what I think, though, when I think went through Peter's mind when all of this happened and he heard that rooster crow? Judas. I think he thought, I'm just like Judas. I'm the same guy. I think in his mind, Peter kind of lumped himself right in there with the betrayer. He recognized his hypocrisy, though, and it broke his heart. And he went out, it says, and he wept bitterly. And so I've been there. And brothers and sisters, I can imagine that you've been there at some point, too. You know, we vowed to follow Jesus, In fact, we come and we sing songs every week that kind of give evidence to the fact that we want to, that we really mean what we say, and yet we so easily fall into patterns of sin, sometimes without even seeing it. Sometimes we don't even notice. You know, when that first servant girl came and asked Peter this question, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Oh, no, 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 that wasn't wasn't me. I don't know that he went into it intending to deny Jesus. In fact, I think we could say that he didn't because he denied that he would do that before. He said, Jesus, I I would never do that. He didn't plan on doing this. But sometimes sin creeps up when we don't plan it. But you know, I think there's something hidden here in between the lines, if you will, that we can see that Peter did not have that you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, do have. And that's the church. That's one another. At this moment in biblical history, the church had not really been established yet. Christ had not returned to heaven and sent the Spirit. And that had not been set in motion. And so Peter didn't have what we do. When we're broken over sin, we don't have to go out and weep bitterly alone. We come in and we have brothers and sisters that weep with us. Man, what a blessing that that is to know that we've got brothers and sisters who are going to do that with us. What a comfort to have the fellowship of believers here that when we're broken over our sin, we don't have to go hide somewhere and cry alone. We come in to the assembly, into the body, and we share that burden. We're told to do that in the New Testament, to share one another's burdens. You know, praise God, we've got brothers and sisters that will weep with us. 
But I think too hidden in the text here is another aspect of this that we need to praise God for. And that's that we've got brothers and sisters that love us too much to just let us remain in a pattern of sin. I, I, I want you to love me enough to say the hard thing to show me my sin and bring me back to the cross. And I want to love you enough to do the same thing for you because it's really not love when we see someone caught in sin and we let them continue. That's not love. That's not a good kind of tolerance. Okay? That's not how we ought to be in the body of Christ. Now, I, may, I know it may sound silly to make this kind of a correlation, but think about the rooster for a second in this story. Nobody ever talks about the rooster, and that's okay. This is, he didn't really do anything out of the ordinary here. But I think that we can almost say that we're like the rooster in the church. Now, hear me out on this. I think real Christian friends, the church, they serve us. The church serves us the same way that the rooster served Peter. What did the rooster do? He didn't you know, lay out this list of wrong things that Peter had done. He didn't do anything out of the ordinary. He just, he just crowed and it brought, brought back to mind the words of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is how the church ought to be. When we see sin, we ought to just remind one another of the words of Christ and that should bring us back to the Savior. In that way, we're like this rooster. And in reality, this is God's correction in our lives, isn't it? This is church discipline in our lives, loving one another, sheltering one another, confronting one another in love and bringing us back to the Savior. This is, I I would contend, actually the discipline of the Lord in our lives, and we should not resist it. It's rarely pleasant. We know that from experience in our own lives, from Hebrews chapter 12. We know that discipline is not pleasant at the time, but guess what? It makes better Christians. It absolutely makes better Christians. So now we get into chapter 27, back in Matthew. Um, we see this little first few verses. They, they kind of set up the scene going forward. It says that the, Jew, the Jewish leaders, they grabbed Jesus. They brought him before Pilate. The reason why they did this is because um, this group did not have the authority to in, inflict the death penalty on anybody. That was kind of reserved for the ruling party of Rome alone. And so they had to take him from Caiaphas, who was part of the Jewish San, uh, Sanhedrin council, and take him to Pilate to have him, hopefully in their mind, hopefully condemn him to death, to be, to be killed. And so that's what they did. They take him to Jesus for Pilate to offer that ultimate judgment. Um, but then it, it kind of shifts and it focuses, the story turns aside to Judas, Right? Now, I mentioned this several weeks ago, and I just kind of went through the gospel accounts of Judas and all of the ways that he's referred to. And almost every time you see his name, it's got the one who betrayed Jesus or the betrayer. I mean, he he had this um, following around with him. But I want to think about the story for a second. We see Judas. He's still probably got that bag of 30 pieces of silver in his hands, right? Now, we don't know if he took the time to count it. There's been a lot going on between the arrest and the trial and now. But you know what? 
probably no one even noticed Judas at this point. Everybody's attention was turned to Jesus. No one noticed him. He was, he was yesterday's news. Now, he took the bag of money, and it says that he changed his mind, and he went, and he tried to give the money back, right? He tried to give it back. He tried to make right for what he had done. But what did the chief priests do? He said, what is that to us? Deal with it on your own. Basically, they just laughed at him. You think we want that money? We don't have any need for that money anymore. We've got what we wanted. They had no use for their money anymore, and they had no use for Judas anymore. So he threw the money on the floor, and he left, obviously crushed by the consequences of his sin. In a sadly ironic twist, he would lose his life before Jesus. The betrayer would die before the one he betrayed. Now, before we move on, I want us to pause just a minute and kind of revel in the mind of God. I know we're limited. We can never do that fully. But I want us to see some things here that are really interesting. Now, we're told in Matthew 27, verses 6 through 10, that the chief priests and the elders, they couldn't bring themselves to keep this 30 pieces of silver. Why? It's blood money. Even they knew it wasn't right for them to keep it, to pocket it, to put it back in the plate. So what were they going to do with it? Well, they decided to buy a field from a potter. This was no accident. <laughs> and it doesn't seem all that unusual until you notice, until we study the silver and the field. What, what's significant about these things? Now, Matthew mentions that these are the words of the prophet Jeremiah, and some of them are, but the majority of them are from the book of Zechariah. Uh, it's likely probably that Matthew kind of gives credit to the more popular and well-known um, prophet here. Mark does the same thing in uh, chapter 1, verse 2 with Isaiah and Malachi. Um, so many of these these verses about the potter's field, the 30 pieces of silver come from the book of Zechariah. Um, let's flash back to the Old Testament for a minute. Okay? Now we're not going to go too too deep into all of these things, but um, if you study some of those Old Testament laws in Exodus, you're going to see that if I own a cow, an ox, and my ox kills one of your servants, I have to make restitution for that with the amount of 30 pieces of silver. Okay? It says that Exodus 21, verse 32, a servant's death was compensated by 30 pieces of silver. Now, in the book of Zechariah, jump to there, um, Zechariah is kind of asked to play the role of a shepherd with a people that are just doomed to slaughter. That's, that's the way it's described in chapter 11. Zechariah went for doing the shepherding work. He went to the people that employed him, and he said, more or less, pay me what you think is right. Pay me what you think I deserve. Guess how much they paid Zechariah? 30 pieces of silver. We find this in Zechariah chapter 11. They meant this as an insult to him because it wasn't a whole lot of money. Um, he sarcastically calls it in verse 13 of chapter 11. He sarcastically calls it a handsome price. Oh, you're giving me what a handsome price for my labors. He was being sarcastic. Um, they were trying to insult him with this. And, and God kind of returning the insult back to his employers. He says, throw the money back. Throw it to the potter. 
Now, these words, these amounts are not a coincidence, brothers and sisters. And we see this in Zechariah. He says, toss it to the potter, and then the money would be used to buy land. Now, this happened, if you know Old Testament history, you know that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years from Zechariah to Christ. All of these things, hundreds of years before, we have all of these prophetic, messianic prophecies um, that ultimately they find their fulfillment perfectly in Jesus, don't they? The 30 pieces of silver. We see the money being used for a potter's field. This is not a coincidence. Brothers and sisters, I think this kind of consistency, this kind of reliability could only come from the mind of a truly sovereign and all-wise God. And this is where we revel just a minute. Hundreds of years these events were separated by, and yet we see the gospel in these moments. Think about this. Jesus is the true servant, severely undervalued, but killed in our place. Paid 30 pieces of silver for. Killed in our place. He has ultimate worth in the universe, and yet he's given up for just a lowly 30 pieces of silver. Uh, This is a good opportunity, as I've mentioned, to just sit back and, and kind of wonder at God at the wisdom of the Lord, at His ways. Obviously, they're high above ours. But you know what? We're better off for that. It's good that He is. Today we have uh, the incredible benefit, though, of history. And so we can kind of look back at the lives of Peter and Judas after these events that we've talked about, after Peter's denial, after Judas in the temple throwing the money back, We can look at history and know what transpired in the life of these men between that moment and their death. And I want to just compare and contrast those things a little bit because they're laid out in Scripture this way. So I want us to flip over to the book of Acts, right? And we're going to see some additional information about both of these guys in the text in the book of Acts. So we've read about the denial of of Jesus from Peter. But, you know, it's not all that long after that event that we kind of catch up with him here in Acts chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 15. Jesus has literally, in the book of Acts, Jesus has literally just ascended into heaven. And Peter is the guy who takes the lead. And I think this is interesting. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 15. So all all of them are standing together. And Peter stands up and he says in verse 15, for these people are not, I'm sorry, verse 14, that should be verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Right? So this is Peter who stands up and takes the reins. This is a much different guy than we see who denies Jesus three times and then goes out and weeps bitterly. Now he's standing up in front of a bunch of people who thinks, think his friends are, are drunk and he's defending them, and not only defending them, but he, he shares the gospel. He preaches truth to them. He's not afraid of them anymore. 
Right? He's not invoking curses on himself, saying, you know, Lord, strike me dead if what I say isn't true. That's the kind of curse he was in, implying. That's not the same Peter anymore. He's not afraid of little girls anymore like he was before and what they would do. Right? He's boldly standing up in front of thousands of people defending the faith and his brothers and sisters in Christ. Much different person. Now flip over to chapter 2. So in between these, kind of before this in Acts, we see that Jesus goes to heaven. The Spirit comes on the apostles like, like a mighty rushing wind. They're given this amazing ability, incredible supernatural ability to speak other languages, to preach the gospel in to all the people that were there. And at the end of all of that, people are saying, these guys are, are intoxicated. Right? That's, that's the only explanation they could come up with. And so Peter, as I mentioned, he stands up and he says, no, that's not what's going on here. And then he preaches one of the most convicting and heart-piercing messages that, that's, that we have recorded in Scripture. And we're not going to go through it all, but he goes from the Old Testament, like he goes almost all the way back to David, um, to Isaiah even, and he comes all the way forward to the current events of the day, to Jesus' death and resurrection, and then he helps them understand, those who were listening, it was your sin. You are the ones that put him on the cross. He helped them understand that they had a part in killing Jesus. And what do we see? How many people came to faith that day? 3,000 people came to faith in Christ because of this message. This is not the same Peter. They were cut to the heart, it says. If you read through the text that I referenced, they were cut to the heart and 3,000 were added to the faith that day. What a sermon. What a, a transformation in the life of Peter. Now we know, you know, many of you, the, the New Testament, and we know that there are several other books. For sure, First and Second Peter were written by this same guy. Those, those books take us through how we should respond to persecution, what church structure should look like, uh, information about his second coming. Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times in the courtyard, is, is speaking truth. And eventually, we know from church history that Peter did end up giving his life for Jesus. Now, church history tells us he also was crucified on a cross, but because of his denial, he asked that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy of being crucified the same as Christ. But he was killed for his faith the same way. Now let's jump and let's compare Peter and the transition, the transformation in his life to Judas for just a minute. In the same text, back in Acts chapter 1, we're given some information about Judas. I do want to read this together. Acts chapter 1 Verse 15 through 20. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. 
And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldema, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Okay. We have a, a similar and yet different account of what happened to Judas here. It, Peter says that he fell headlong and burst open in a potter's field. Now, this is imagery that I'm not going to expand on because your mind already went there. Okay, that's fine. Um, this, these are the words that were given. And so it's not really pleasant to think or talk about. But this is this is what uh, Peter says happened. Now, it's strange, though, because this, that's not really the way that Matthew said it happened. So just, just for some clarification and education here, I, th- I think it's likely that without getting too far into the mode and process of, of how someone hangs themselves, um, it's likely that he went to the edge of a cliff, a tree off of an edge of a cliff, and attempted to, to hang himself in that way. Uh, it's possible that the limb that he chose broke. He fell to the rocks below. And things came out, as Peter describes. Um, it's possible also that the limb did not necessarily break, but he stayed there long enough in that culture and that climate and that heat wouldn't have taken long for a body to disintegrate enough to fall on its own. And things would have happened the way that Peter said it would. Um, but I want us to be clear, either way you look at it, Judas is gone. Either way you look at it, both Matthew and Peter deal with the effect of Satan's control over Judas's life. And they both make this main point clear. And it's this. Opposing Jesus brings complete disgrace and destruction. Judas's remorse drove Judas to death. But you know what? Peter's remorse drove him to death too, didn't it? But man, what a difference in the way that they died. One out of despair, one out of dedication. In all intents and purposes, Judas lived a very Christian-y life, didn't he? I mean, he was welcomed in to this band of brothers that went with Jesus. They thought enough of him to let him keep the money bag. You don't give the money bag to someone you think is a deceiver, a liar, a cheat. You just don't do that. They thought highly of Judas to some degree. But there was a difference. Peter betrayed Jesus just like Judas did, but he laid down his life for Jesus. I think the difference comes in the way that things are written here in Matthew chapter 27. So flip on back to Matthew 27 and look at what it says in verse 3. There's an interesting phrase here that I think we need to dig a little deeper on for our understanding, for our help here. It says in Matthew 27, verse 3, that Judas changed his mind. Uh, Some of your translations may say repented. We need to get into the Greek, and we're not going to spend a lot of time with this. Um, But we read that phrase, well, Judas changed his mind. Doesn't that mean that he was sorry and that he repented and that God would have forgiven him? Uh, I mean, if you look at Acts one twenty five, uh, I would say no, not according to Peter. Peter says this. He says to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship 
from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. To go to, other, other translations say, um, to go to where he belongs. Heaven has never been described this way anywhere else in Scripture. I don't think we can say that Peter was saying Judas went to heaven. I think it's quite the opposite. Judas went to where he belongs. Jesus himself calls Judas the devil in John 6, verse 70. In John 17, verse 12, he says that he was the one, Judas was the one doomed for destruction. I don't think Jesus meant Judas was a demon. I think that he was just acting under Satan's influence. He had given himself over to Satan for that use. So, Change his mind doesn't mean that he was saved then. What does it mean? If he doesn't mean that he repented, what does change his mind mean? And so I want to talk about guilt for just a minute. How many of you have ever felt guilty for something? You can raise your hand. That's okay. Every, everybody in this room has their hand up. We've all felt guilt to some degree or another because of the bad things that we do. But there's a difference. Did you know there's a difference between the kind of guilt you experience Okay, this plays out in scripture and we'll look at it in just a moment, but there's a kind of grief, there's a kind of sorrow, there's a kind of guilt, there's a kind of remorse. I'll use all those words kind of interchangeably here. There's a kind of sorrow that leads to repentance and to life. And there's a kind of sorrow, the apostle Paul tells us, that leads to death. That is, I think, the kind of sorrow that Judas experienced the kind of sorrow that still led to death. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, 9, and 10. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly re- grief produces death. Paul, it sort of seems like he's flip-flopping there at the beginning. He's saying, you know, I'm sorry I wrote you the letter, but I'm kind of not sorry because of what it produced in you. It produced godly grief that led to repentance. Worldly grief, guys, and you know this, worldly grief sometimes takes the appearance of godly grief, but it never actually produces the same outcome. That's where we see the change. That's where we see the difference. Judas experienced what I believe is this grief that leads, this sorrow that leads to death, this worldly sorrow. Brothers and sisters, godly sorrow over our sin results in genuine repentance. It just does. Godly sorrow over our sin will result in genuine repentance. In your notes, you've got three different verses from Proverbs 28, Joel 2, and James 4. And they all talk about what it means to genuinely repent. And we're not going to go through them all for sake of time this morning, but hopefully you've got some notes and you can look at those. We're told to fast, to weep, to mourn, not to cover our sin. That's the response that leads to life, that leads to repentance, salvation, and life. Godly sorrow is actually a really good thing, I would contend, because it calls us back to the Savior and not back to ourselves. Because that's our inclination. 
when we're confronted with a sin, our inclination is to do what? Justify it. Shift the blame. All kinds of ungodly things that do not lead to life and repentance. Those things continued on will lead to death. But godly grief leads us back to the Savior and not ourselves. And we see examples of this throughout history. Just to name a few, David, the Ninevites, the prodigal son. Now, don't get me wrong. There was grievous sin committed in all of these instances. And yet, godly sorrow produced in all of them real repentance, which produced what God desired turning them away from themselves and what they could produce and do on their own and back to him, back to the Lord. It it quickly caused them to realize, I'm not good enough on my own. I can't be good enough on my own. I can't do this on my own. I need to look to the Savior. And that's what godly sorrow produces. So we, unfortunately, but I think as as a service to us, we see examples of of worldly sorrow in scripture too though. And I want to take one just real quickly as kind of a case study. And that's all the way back to the beginning with Cain. Cain. We see in Genesis 4 that Abel's sacrifice pleased God, but Cain's did not. So here's what happened. You guys are probably familiar with this story. Cain was upset, filled with sorrow, but he did not respond with repentance. In verse 5 of Genesis 4, we see how he responded in anger. In that anger, Cain killed Abel. He denied it, he lied about it, and he was told he would be punished for it, and he complained that the punishment was more than he could bear. So just recap, with the idea of godly sorrow in mind, this case study of worldly sorrow of Cain. When Cain's worship was not accepted, what did he do? He became angry. When he was rebuked for his anger, what did he do? He killed his brother. When questioned about that sin, he denied it, lied to God, and he made excuses for his sin. When told he would be punished, he complained about the punishment, that it was more than he could bear, and he tried to avoid it. That is worldly sorrow that leads to death, not godly sorrow that leads to life. At no point do we see Cain repent of that sin, even acknowledge that sin, or ask for forgiveness from that sin. We see that in the examples of godly sorrow that we mentioned, David. There's whole Psalms written about David confessing his sin, repenting of it. The Ninevites, even though Jonah preached a terrible sermon, the Ninevites turned to the Lord (laughs) And the the prodigal son, all of these went to the Lord. They turned away from their sin and they were given life. But instead of repenting, Cain just went deeper into sin, didn't he? Just went deeper and deeper into it. At no point do we see Judas repenting of his sin, experiencing any kind of godly sorrow that leads to life. We don't ever see anything change in his life. We see sin exposed despair set in and the end of his life. And as sad as that is, that's what we see. When sin is exposed, the sinner often gets angry and seeks to cover his guilt out of worldly sorrow. And ultimately, this is what drove Judas to take his own life. He had intense feelings of remorse and guilt, but that's not the same thing as true repentance. 
It really isn't. Parents, think about when you discipline a child. My daughter, I love her to death, but she is so sneaky. When we have campouts, you have to keep a really close eye on the bag of marshmallows because she's just at the right height that she can stick her arm up on the table and get one out and then go to the other side. And I mean, she, she'll take a whole bag out before you even notice. But so if, if she's eating the marshmallows, but I'll say, you, you don't need to do that. Don't eat any more marshmallows. And then I see them doing it again. And I say, okay, you're going to be disciplined for your disobedience. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. Now, is that changing? Is that changing her mind? Is that feeling sorry? Is that repenting because she's genuinely sorry? Or is it repenting because she got caught? There's a difference there, right? I'm afraid, though, that that kind of behavior has grown up with us as adults a lot of times and has never really been corrected by the Lord or by another brother or sister. And we may not be stealing marshmallows. Our sins are often much greater than that. And there is a difference between feeling sorry for being caught and feeling sorry because you know you're wrong and you can't be right on your own. Now, most Bible dictionaries in this section of, of Matthew, they point out the Greek phrase here. Um, I've tried all week to get this right. I'll probably butcher it again. I think it's in your notes, but it's metamelomai. Yeah. My other Greek scholar says, go for it. Uh, but basically, this word means changed his mind. That's the word that we see in the text here. Uh, and it shows that Judas definitely experienced some kind of regret some degree of remorse, but it doesn't necessarily mean a change of heart. So a different form of the same word, metanoi, means a change of one's mind that leads to a change of purpose and a change of life. It takes it that much further. Godly sorrow ultimately produces real repentance that leads to a change of purpose in life. That's what repentance means. So here's the question as we wrap it up this morning. Is that your response when sin is brought to the surface? Is that my response when sin is brought to the surface? Usually, as I mentioned before, we, we don't respond like that. We, we deflect, we cast blame, we try to justify our sin, we try to avoid the the discipline. We try to make excuses for it. That is not godly sorrow that leads to life. That is worldly sorrow that produces nothing but death. So Judas's story actually does us a favor if his story causes us to rethink our commitment to the Lord. If it causes us to take just a moment and reflect, how do I respond when my sin is brought to the surface? Most of us in this room would call ourselves Christian, but are we in name only? Or are we practicing? Are we going through the motions? Or are we really real in our repentance and seeking after the Savior? Have you truly turned from your sins and trusted Jesus? Or are you, like Judas, a fair-weather friend of the Savior? These are questions that obviously are difficult to answer and that you and the Lord can only answer. But I hope that we don't take them lightly today. This lesson from Judas's life is lost if we don't ask ourselves these questions.
If guilt or sorrow is present in your life today, what will its outcome be? There's a chance, I would say a a very good chance, that some of us are, are experiencing this. We've done something that we should not have. And we're feeling guilt. We're feeling sorrow. Brothers and sisters, that can be a good thing in your life. What will it drive you to? Remember, Peter and Judas both were killed because of their remorse, but their deaths couldn't have been any different. Hopelessness and despair wait to claim another victim right around the corner, but forgiveness in life can be found in in Jesus Christ today. Because of Him, we have hope in our sorrow and our guilt. Because of Him, we can face tomorrow and fight sin. And because of Him, we can still have hope when we have blown it like Peter did. We still have hope because of the Savior. Our relationship with God is not dependent on our goodness, thankfully. It's dependent on the goodness of the Savior. In your guilt, in your sorrow... I would encourage you, don't look at yourself. Don't respond out of worldly sorrow like Cain did, like Judas did. Instead, look away from yourself and look to the Savior. That's what leads to a transformation of life that we see from Peter, afraid of little girls in the courtyard, to Peter standing in front of a group of thousands of people and who preaches boldly the truth. That's what makes the difference, godly sorrow that leads to life. Brothers and sisters, I I pray that that's what happens when our sin is brought to the surface, that we're led to repentance and we're led to life. Let's pray this morning. Lord, you use even, even difficult things in our lives, even our sin, God, you use to bring us back to you. I might even argue especially our sin because it's in those low moments that we see how desperately desperately we need a Savior. So Lord, there may be some this morning that are wrestling. And that's a good word to use here. Lord, they are wrestling with feelings of remorse and regret and sorrow. God, may you produce in them repentance that leads to life, not worldly sorrow that leads to death. Lord, uh, free them from the results of Judas and Cain. Lord, give them life. Help them to choose life, to choose Jesus today, to look away from themselves and how how they can fix their own problem and look to the forgiveness and mercy found in Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen.